I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. It's been regarded as the faithful doorkeeper to the Psalter. Right away it sets in contrast the wicked with the righteous and their lives and their end. Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Our Father, very sobering words these. We pray that they wouldn't just be those that pass over our eyes, that don't settle into our heart. O Lord, might we be those who read these Words and apply themselves to our own lives and to test ourselves, examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, whether we are numbered among the blessed who meditate upon your law day and night, whose lives demonstrate the kind of fruit that proves that we're rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ and not be those who have an empty profession of faith who prove in the end to be nothing but chaff which will be blown away and burned with unquenchable fire. So Lord, help us, sober us at this time as we open your word. Cause our attention to be fixed upon the issues of eternity. And as they cast their shadow back upon time, might we understand their practical implications in our own lives. So Lord, help us to hear. Help us to hear the voice of the great shepherd speaking through the word of God this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're considering principles from Proverbs, the instruction that Solomon gives for a God-fearing life. Look at, with me at Proverbs chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 7 through 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Now, last week, we, from these verses considered instruction to parents, that parents, you have a responsibility to teach your children the fear of the Lord 
And we looked at a basic assumption that's, that's really in between the lines here. And that basic assumption is that both parents, if they would teach the fear of the Lord to their children, they must know the Lord themselves. They must fear Him, both mom and dad, if they're going to have the maximum blessed impact in teaching the fear of the Lord to their children. And then we saw the plain requirement here, and that is that both parents should be unified in their instruction. They're not going to be unity in instruction unless there's unity in faith and fear of the Lord. Now, this morning, we come to consider, after looking at instruction to parents last week, instruction to children. But let me just say, as I introduce this point, as I gave instruction to parents last week, one of you spoke with me privately after the message and suggested that it may have been imbibed in the, in the pew that if parents simply instruct their children faithfully, that their children are going to come to know and fear and serve the Lord. Well, we know in our own experience as a congregation that that is not always true. Parents can, can be faithful in their instruction in the truth, in their example, in living the truth, and yet their children not yet follow them. And it's, it's a sad fact that you may train up a children in the way that he should go, and even when he is older, he will turn from it. And so, I, I must give that caveat. When we look at the Proverbs, they're Proverbs, they're not promises. They're general indications that if you live your life this way, this will be the outcome. So let us consider, then, instruction to children. Children, you have a responsibility to learn the fear of the Lord. Two points here this morning. First of all, you have a responsibility to learn the fear of God for yourself. If you would learn the fear of God, first of all, you must understand what the fear of the Lord is and what the fear of the Lord is not. Now, many, especially young people, misunderstand what the fear of the Lord is. So, learn first what the fear of the Lord is not. First of all, the fear of the Lord is not natural fear, things that we are afraid of. It's, it's not fear of thunder and lightning, of tornadoes or climate change or things like that. It's not the same kind of fear as you might have when you are coming to a test. You're afraid of failing a school exam. It's not common phobias. I'm afraid of the dark, or I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of spiders and snakes, etc. Furthermore, it's not the fear of parental punishment. You should be afraid of parental punishment in the sense that you should want to do right and know that your parents' threats, if you do wrong, are not empty threats. And I suggest to you, if you do fear the Lord, you'll have a proper fear of parental punishment. But it's not just fear of parental punishment by itself. The fear of the Lord is not the fear of death. You should be preparing to die. And if you live in the fear of the Lord, that it will not be a... A passage of torment between time and eternity, between this life and the next. Furthermore, the fear of the Lord is not the fear of hell. 
that we should be properly afraid of hell because it's real, it's terrifying. It's inescapable for those that are outside of Christ, those that we read about in Psalm 1, where there is no fear of God before their eyes. Their delight is not in meditating upon the law of God. So the fear of the Lord is not natural fear, nor is the fear of the Lord the fear of people. It's not the fear of what others may think of you or fear of rejection. For example, Saul's fear of losing face with Israel after God had judged him through the mouth of Samuel the prophet. When Saul pleaded with Samuel, say, please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. It's not the fear of men. Furthermore, it's not the fear of bodily harm that could be inflicted upon you by wicked people. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to both destroy soul and body in hell. And again, it is not the fear of rejection by religious people. Where you have this kind of thinking, well, if I don't believe this, or if I don't act like that, I won't be regarded as a true Christian. No, it's not the fear of man. The fear of man brings a snare, Solomon says. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Well, what is the fear of the Lord? Well, as we noted last time, it is a profound sense of awe, reverence, and respect toward God. United with an appreciation, a great appreciation for and an acknowledgement of who he is and what he does. The fear of God produces both a constant conscious desire to please him and a dread of offending him in all things, in every aspect and area of life. In fact, the fear of the Lord is the heart of evangelical obedience. We read after the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, God said this. Oh, and when they said this, we're going to obey all of these things that you have said. God says, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments Always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Well, the Bible teaches that not all men fear the Lord. In fact, it teaches that many have no fear of God before their eyes. They're destitute of the fear of of God. They live as if he doesn't exist and as if they will never be called to account for their lives lived in this world. You see, only those who truly know the Lord fear the Lord. So if you would fear him, you must first come to know him. Solomon puts the two together, the knowledge of God and the fear of God. Proverbs 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. 
If you would fear the Lord, you must know the Lord. And when you fear the Lord, you know him and you gain wisdom and you gain understanding. In fact, the fear of the Lord is understanding. We come to know the Lord when he saves us by granting us eternal life in Jesus Christ. So Jesus implies when he prays in John 17, in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. If you're going to know the Lord, you have to have eternal life. And you have eternal life when you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved. You enter into eternal life then. But it comes by truly knowing God and knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, those who know God and experience eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, they have their sins forgiven and God writes His law upon their hearts the Bible teaches that these blessings belong to all of God's people under the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. A different covenant, not like the one at Sinai that was given to Israel in the flesh. No, this is going to be given to a people they are going to be a different people. They're going to be the true Israel of God. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law that was external on ta tablets of stone. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not Teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. That's what the godly did under the old covenant. They had unconverted neighbors. They were all part of the Mosaic covenant, but many of them were circumcised in the flesh. They were not circumcised in the heart. They didn't truly know God. There were evangelists among the children of Israel who had this change of heart given them by God, who were the true people of God. Notice and they shall not again teach each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Notice, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. All of the blessings of the new covenant are based on the redemption that God has provided in Jesus Christ. Notice Jeremiah 32 and verse 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant, the same one that Jeremiah is speaking of, with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. The same heart upon which God had written his law, the same heart that knew the Lord. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. God will not turn away from them. They will not turn away 
from Him. Why? He has put His law in their hearts. He's given them the fear of God. Brethren, what does this teach us? That saving Christianity is heart religion. It's not just outward actions. It begins in the heart. And at the heart of saving religion is the fear of God. This fear flows from a new heart that knows the Lord, a heart upon which God has written His law, a heart which rests in the forgiveness of sin, a heart that delights in in and desires to obey God's commandments. Such persons, and only such persons, truly fear the Lord. And though, though this is the work of God's grace, He's the one that gives us the new hearts. He's the one that puts the fear of Himself in our hearts. Though this is the work of God by His grace, young people, you must not, you must not be content. You must not rest until you trust Jesus Christ. Then you will know the Lord. Then you will fear the Lord. Don't wait for God to zap you. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Only then will you know and fear the Lord. Only then will your sins be forgiven. Only then will you experience eternal life and will never turn away from God. Brethren, this is a glorious promise. All who fear the Lord will live for Him in this life and arrive safely in heaven at last. God's first commandment to you is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So God's first commandment to you, placed using different words, is for you to choose the fear of the Lord. Oh, do not be like those foolish persons that Solomon describes in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 29. Because they hated knowledge... They didn't like the truth. They didn't like the Bible. They didn't like Christianity. Because they hated knowledge, because they hated the knowledge of God, they did not choose the fear of the Lord. Is that you this morning? Oh, I pray that it's not. So you have a responsibility to learn the fear of God for yourself. You can't go to heaven hanging on your parents' coattails. Their salvation doesn't save you. You must be saved yourself, even as they were saved themselves. But notice, secondly, you have a responsibility to learn the fear of God from your parents. God has blessed you, many of you, with Christian parents. I don't know about the older people in this congregation, what how you're raised exactly, but I knew, do know that you young people are being raised by godly Christian parents. So this word is especially for you. Your parents' chief duty is to teach you the fear of the Lord, and therefore job one for you is to learn the fear of God from them. They're to teach you. You are to learn from them. And the most obvious mark that you fear God is your submission to your parents. Do you submit to their 
authority. I'm not saying grudgingly. I'm saying gladly. Maybe it's not always gladly as much as you should be, but your desire is to obey their, your parents. Do you submit to their authority? Are you obedient to their instructions? The apostle's instruction echoes that of the wise king. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Maybe you've never thought that obedience to your parents' children is a religious duty. That's what the Bible teaches. Paul makes it very plain here. We know this from the three little words, in the Lord. You are to obey your parents in the Lord. And this means a couple of things. First, you obey the Lord as you obey mom and dad. To obey your, your parents is to obey the Lord. Second, it is right that you obey mom and dad. You might have guessed that, that it would be right because you're obeying them in the Lord. Mr. Spurgeon comments. He says, it is right, according to nature, that those who have so long cared for children and nourished them should be obeyed by them. And... It is right according to the will of God. He says it. We're to do it. It is right for the house, which cannot else be kept in order. When you have disobedient children, it causes a disorderly home. But it's the pleasure of parents and of children. When children obey their parents, so there's not that friction and fussing and fighting that goes on when children are at war, war with their parents and ultimately at war with God. Spurgeon goes on to say, And write for the children themselves, who will never be happy till they have learned to obey. When you're always wrestling against mom and dad's authority, when you're fighting against their will, you're not going to be happy. They're not going to be happy. The home ain't going to be happy. Spurgeon goes on to say, Yet observe, there is a limit. Children are to obey in the Lord. That is to say, so far as the commandments of parents are not opposed to the laws of God. No mom or dad has the right to forbid you from praying or reading your Bible or from worshiping God or from professing faith in Jesus Christ. No God-fearing parent would ever command you to lie or to cheat or to violate any law of God. That would be wrong. But if what they command you is right before God, it is right for you to obey them. You are especially blessed if God in His sovereign grace has given you Christian parents to love you, to care for you, to teach you the fear of the Lord. Young people, that is an inestimable blessing. You may not understand it now, but I trust you will later 
in life. So God chose Abraham that he may command his children that they may inherit a blessing. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. God says, speaking of Abraham, for I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. To what end? In order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. All of the promises that belong to Abraham of a seed and of great blessing and of a land course those things the land has fallen away but we do have the new heavens and the new earth waiting for us who are in the new covenant but great blessing attends children that obey mom and dad it's a cosmic principle and law that God honors those who honor him God blesses children who honor and obey their parents. And brethren, remember that this is a commandment with a promise. This is the first commandment with a promise, Paul says, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. God promises that it will be well with you when you submit to parental authority. You'll be happy too. Children, are you ever happy when you're disobeying mom and dad? When you have their frown and you may feel their pedal? Are you happy? Of course you're not. But when you do what they command and you see their smile and your warm pat on the shoulder, they're happy, you're happy, the whole house is happy, right? But when there's a dark cloud over you because you've been disobedient and angry towards your parents, I think the last one in the house that's happy is you, right? Proverbs 14 and verse 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. It's a fountain. It's bubbling over with blessing. And it may even lead to a long life because you're not engaged in those areas of disobedience to parents and disobedience to God that puts you in harm's way that may bring, uh, pre, bring an end to your life before you expected it. Well, we've seen what the fear of God is and that it works in the hearts of children, making them respectful and obedient and that it blesses their lives. So let's return to Proverbs. Solomon's first, Solomon first commands children to hear the instruction and to heed the commands of parents in verses 1 through 9. In the rest of chapter 10, the wise king warns children against listening to the tempting Words of those that would lead them astray into sin. And those voices are all around us. They're around adults and they're around children. It's the world that we live in. 
One tragic effect of our fall in Adam is that we inherited a sin nature that makes us more attracted to bad advice and ready to follow evil examples instead of listening to godly counsel and to imitate a righteous example. That's the overall lesson of Proverbs. And notice the outline of the rest of chapter 1. We have in verses 10 through 19 a warning against corrupt companions. Verse 10, we have the Father's fervent warning. Verses 11 through 14, the friends' alluring promises, wicked friends. And verses 15 through 19, the Father's chilling prediction of what awaits such disobedient children. And then we have wisdom's impassioned appeal in verses 20 through 33. We're just going to consider Solomon's warning in verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Oh, dear young people, I cannot overstate the danger you face if you turn a deaf ear to your godly parents' biblical instruction and example. This world is no friend to grace to help you on to God. Instead, it is a hostile environment. It's hostile to Christ. It's hostile to His people. It hates holiness. It would chew you up and spit you out. It would utterly destroy you and in the end make you a child of hell. I'm not overstating the case. The Bible teaches this from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. Today we're only going to consider those the, the warning in verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Notice with me three points. First of all, the persons addressed. My son. You have to hear pathos in the pen of Solomon. He says, my son. This is my beloved son in whom I, have, I am well pleased, said the father of the son of God. My son. Who are more precious to parents than their children? Young people, your godly parents see you as God's gift, that He has entrusted to them as, as a precious stewardship to be raised in His nurture and admonition, that you may learn to love and to follow the Lord. You have but few years under their roof to learn the fear of God. The Apostle Paul viewed himself as a spiritual parent and his converts as beloved children to be educated in grace, to be instructed so that they may live lives worthy of their calling by God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and following. Paul's own testimony before them. But we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. You see, they're the apple of her eye. They are the fond ones of her heart. They're the ones for whom she labors. 
to see good come to them through her example and instruction. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, first at her breast and then on her knee, having thus a fond affection for you like this gentle nursing mother. We were well pleased. It was a happy duty for us to impart to you, Thessalonian Christians, not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. We poured ourselves out in the preaching. We poured ourselves out in your service. Why? Because you had become very dear to us, just like the children to a mother. And he says, this can't be gainsaid. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God. How we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you. Now he shifts to the other parent. As a father would his own children, this principled exhortation, lovingly at times getting in their face, telling them what they needed to believe and to do. To what end? So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Children, your parents seek to be that to you. Not just instruction from this pulpit, but instruction at home, across the kitchen table, in the living room, in the bedroom, when they come and tuck you in, encourage you. They want to see you grow. They want to see you become a Christian. They want to see you go to heaven. And what is implied here, beloved, is that love has the power to move us to obey the Lord. Jesus teaches that if we love him, we will what? We will keep his commandments. It's just a given in the mind of our Lord. Love moves your parents to instruct you and to care for you. And so you demonstrate your love for them by gladly submitting to their loving exhortations and their admonitions and their warnings. I suggest to you that many children do not begin to truly appreciate such principled parental love until they get older. Maybe not until they are out of the house or even after the Lord takes them. Learn from them now. For you children, I hope that it is sooner, much sooner, that you learn to appreciate your parents and therefore to give them your heart. That's what Solomon says to his son. My son, give me your heart. His heart was to have their heart, to, to mold it and shape it according to the teaching of the Word of God, that they might be holy and happy and truly whole. Oh, may He now give you such a heart to fear Him and to love and to appreciate your parents as a means of blessing to you. Children, your parents understand in a way that you can barely imagine the treachery of your own heart, how it gravitates toward folly and sin. You know, they weren't born yesterday. 
They know too well your rebellious tendencies since they were once your age, believe it or not. They know how attractive this wicked world is. They know the remedy for your ignorance is the knowledge of God. And that is why they're so concerned that you learn the fear of the Lord. They know that your heart is a magnet and this world is steel and would draw you into its irreverent and rebellious clutches. That like a tsunami, it would sweep you to drown in a sea of sin. They know these things. Love moves mom and dad to plead with the Lord that you would come to know and fear Him. And love moves them to plead with you to follow the way of righteousness and to avoid the snares of sinners. Oh, may you become wise in heart. May you become wise unto salvation by heeding their parental pleas. Proverbs 23, verses 15 through 17. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad. And my inmost being will rejoice. I will be joyful right down to the very the depths of my soul, Solomon says. When your lips speak what is right, do not let your heart envy sinners but live in the fear of the Lord always. Nothing cheers the heart of a Christian parent more than to see his or her children embrace Jesus Christ by faith and then to see them love the truth and learn to follow him on their own. They long to amen the happy exclamation of the Apostle John in 3 John verse 4, where John writes, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. What parent cannot amen that? And so those are the persons addressed. My son, we'd say my daughter, my children. Notice, secondly, the danger presented. If sinners entice you. Notice the identity of those who entice. They are dangerous persons. They're not inciting you to holiness. They're tempting you to wickedness. They're sinners. But you might ask, well, Pastor Steve, aren't all people sinners? Even Christians, since we all fall short of the glory of God? Ah, uh, children, these sinners are not Christians. They have no fear of God before their eyes. They don't know the Lord. They aren't trusting Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. These are the people of the world. The psalmist identifies them and their influence in contrast with the blessed persons who meditate upon the law of the Lord. We saw this in Psalm 1 in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. No, their delight isn't meditating in the law of God, but in the ways of wickedness. 
We will look at their character and conduct more in detail, God willing, next week. But note here that sinners are not happy unless they involve others in their sin. They are enticing you to do what they're doing. Why is that? Well, misery loves company. Wickedness has its own false fellowship. And I suggest to you, the one reason sinners want to entice professing Christian young people especially is because they have a bad conscience. And they feel more comfortable and justified in their sin if they can get others, especially nice religious kids, to join them in their wickedness. It baptizes their sin as far as their corrupted minds are concerned. If I can get just Johnny or Janie live in a Christian home to do what I'm do doing, I won't feel so bad about my sin. Therein lies the temptation to corruption and the enticement of a professing Christian child or one who's raised in a Christian home to go and be with the crowd. Godly parents know all too well the evil effects of a wicked influence upon those who profess to fear God. Yet how little to young people judge the impact of an evil influence. Proverbs 13 and verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You go with them, you run with them, their end is going to be your end. My wife and I both like cucumbers, and we've enjoyed the cucumbers that Becky's been given to us. I like my cucumbers a little bit different than hers. She likes to just skin them and slice them up, maybe put a little salt on them and eat them. Oh, I like them that way too. But I would rather put them in apple cider vinegar for a while. I like that kind of sour bitterness. Well, what happens to young people is what happens to cucumbers in vinegar. They take on the flavor. You, you have as wicked friends, those ones that influence your life, you're going to take on their savor. You're going to become like them. And this, we see instances of this in the Bible. Take Lot, for instance. When under the direct influence of Uncle Abraham, all was well. But shortly after entering the land, he had a hankering to explore the wider world around him. And so what did he do? He pitched his tents towards Sodom. And before long, he was living shoulder to shoulder with Sodomites. His folly almost cost him his life. The spiritually numbing influence of his wicked neighbors may well have disposed him to a sin that has scandalized his name ever since. And take Jacob's daughter Dinah. They come into the land. She's all excited to learn about what's going on with all these people around her. She wants to go visit the women, you know, find out what they're wearing and, and their jewelry and all the things that girls like to, to learn from other girls. But there was a boy out there. And his name was Shechem. 
Even the influence of her godly father did not keep her curiosity about her pagan neighbors from leading her into harm's way with disastrous results. And it caused nothing but turmoil, stress in the home and between families. Dinah had to live with shame after that. Oh, young people, be warned. Solomon says in Proverbs 27 and verse 8, like a bird that wanders from her nest, leaving the place of safety, being guarded by her mother and father birds. Like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders from his home. You put yourself in harm's way. You remove yourself from the place of safety. Do you know that a young person's most dangerous enemies may be among those that are closest to him in relations? One need think only of Jonadab, the cousin of Amnon, David's firstborn son. We read that Jonadab was a very shrewd man. Amnon, he had a desire sexually for his half-sister. Beautiful girl. And he wanted to bring her under his power, and he just couldn't do it. And he was getting sick because of it. So John and Deb says, come here, let me tell you a story. This is what you need to do. You pretend like you're sick. Send everybody else out of the house. You have Tamar come in and Cook and feed you. Well, you know the rest of the story. The rest of the story isn't pretty. But you see, Amnon heeded Jonadab's wicked counsel, leading to the defilement of his own sister. Oh, you young people, be warned. You may drop your guard when temptations to sin come from those who are closest to you. They'll have the most power of influence over you. Then there's the power of unholy peer pressure. Sins that you may not be so re ready to commit by yourself, you will commit when pressured by a crowd to do so. That's why we are warned in Exodus 23 and verse 2, you shall not follow a multitude in doing evil. You're not to, well, everybody else is doing it, Dad. You're not to follow a multitude in doing evil. Right is not settled by numbers. It's settled by the word of God. Saul heeded the voice of Israel and went with them in their rebellion against God in the matter of Agag. God said, you, slu slu you kill everything that has breath in it. You slay everything from Agag down to the littlest lamb and everything and everyone in between. Leave nothing with breath. Well, Saul didn't do that. He said, I'm going to bring a, a present to God, an offering. And so he kept the best of the animals. He killed everyone, spared Agag. Samuel comes to here before him, and he says, what's this bleeding of sheep I hear? And who's this? He, he made an excuse. It was the people that made me do it. Oh. 
So it was in Israel. Saul, uh, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law. All the people were hankering for a good time. They talked Aaron into making an image. Well, the people made me do it, brother. How often we use that excuse. But you know they, what they say, excuse, excuses are the lies that we tell ourselves. Do not be naive about the depths of depravity of those who would entice you to sin. They may seem nice enough. In fact, they may be utterly blind to their own wickedness. They may think that they're good people. They may think that they're, they're going to help you in some way. But there's nothing innocent about them. You are to stay far away, as Solomon says in Proverbs 2, 11 through 15, from the man who speaks perverse things, who leave the paths of wickedness to walk in the ways of darkness, notice, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil. Not just the act, but its very wickedness. They rejoice in it. They rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and whose are, who are devious in their ways. And what are some common enticements sinners use to lure you into sin, young people? Hey, I got a six-pack of beer. Why don't you come over? Mom and Dad aren't home. Or, you know, somebody turned me on to this stuff. You smoke it. It makes you feel funny. Check it out with me. And as you get older in your adolescent years, you know, mom and dad aren't home and, and uh, you know, we can play around a little bit. Especially guys saying that to girls. And girls will say it to guys. I remember one time when I was a young person, there was a young lady who scared the socks off me. I had to run home. I, I said, what's this girl up to? I just wish I'd followed my feet at other times in my life. Sexual experimentation or unwholesome entertainment. Come over. We, we got this movie I think you want to watch. It'll tickle your fancy. Unwholesome entertainment, movies, videos, romance, books, porn. Dear ones, before we leave this point, I... I would be remiss if I didn't remind you why the temptations of sinners are so powerful. The evil one has a handle in your heart. The world would lose all its magnetism and charm if our hearts were united to fear the Lord. Sinners would not be so attractive were we more separated from their influence and consecrated to the Lord. We want to just see how close we can get to them and not sin. Well, that's a prescription for disaster. Run! What did Joseph do when he was tempted to sin with Potiphar's wife? He didn't argue with her. He turned on his heels and ran. That's what we need to do. Don't try to argue down your 
the, your own sinful heart. No, you try to argue your heart, they're going to talk you into things that you wouldn't otherwise do if you followed the inclination of a holy heart to put as much distance between you and temptation as possible. So you must place the lion's share of blame where it belongs with your own heart. The devil didn't make you do it. They didn't make you do it. You did it on your own. You see, we're taught today to place the blame for things, for problems, for sin. It's, it's everybody else, it's not me. They did it, not me. Well, if you follow that logical conclusion, you're part of the they. Whether you are on the giving end or the receiving end of the temptation, you have a, you have a predisposition toward listening to those things. And that's why we need to stick our fingers in our ears and not listen. Well, you're just not cool. What's the matter? Are you some kind of prude, you holy Joe? I want to be holy. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Yes, we are warned against being enticed by sinners, but their temptations would lose their enticing power if we were more diligent to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Therefore, notice finally, and more briefly, the defense declared. If sinners entice you, do not consent. Sins that seem so harmless at first may become cruel tyrants. And you may have to live with their memory the rest of your life. I would spare you of that, young people. Ask anyone addicted to nicotine, hooked on booze, or enslaved to pornography. It may have seemed so innocent, that first puff, that first drink, that first look. But where did it lead? Young people, I plead with you, beware of the beginnings of sin. An old drunk never would have thought at his first drink that it would lead him to the sorry state that he finds himself today. The man or woman who is enslaved to an immoral lifestyle may never have thought that that unchaste look or flirting with pornography would end up going to the doctor to find out that he has venereal disease or she an unwanted pregnancy or worse. You can't play with fire without getting burned. And we can be our own worst pyromaniacs. Set ourselves on fire. Do not consent. They hand you the match. Don't torch yourself. Step back. Solomon's warning to abandon strife before it breaks out applies no less to avoiding sin, Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. You've seen a little kid try, with a big pitcher trying to pour himself a glass of milk. Next thing you know, it gets away from him. It's all over the table, right? So it is with sin. Well, just a little sip. No, we're swept away. 
We don't know our own hearts, do we? Proverbs 5.8, speaking specifically of sexual sin, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Don't click on the enticing sidebars. You see things when you're in YouTube or some other social media, don't follow. Well, it's just an enticing breadcrumb. Next thing you know, you're going to be lost in the woods of sin. The warning of Solomon as an experienced loving father. He, he knew what he spoke of, didn't he? This wasn't abstract to Solomon. It wasn't theory at all. He knew all about it. 700 wives, 300 concubines, everything that a man could want in this life, the richest man perhaps that ever lived. He wore himself out pursuing sin in this direction and in that direction. He knows of what he speaks, children. Do not consent. It's far easier to avoid giving in to temptation than it is to break it off once you've gotten started. Yet how many young people think that they can flirt with sin, get as close to it as possible, and remain pure? What often happens? In the heat of temptation, they lose their resolve and they get swept away by their lust. I would imagine that Dinah probably wished that she had never smiled at Shechem and had listened to her father and not wandered away from the safety of her home. Those memories followed her all the way to the grave. Pride is the downfall of many young people. How many think more highly of themselves than they ought? The devil's hiss sounds sweet to the ear of the proud. You that flirt with temptation play right into his fiendish hands. And he wants to turn you every which way but loose. You see, the time to stop is before you get started. If sinners entice you, do not consent. How you need to know the Lord if you would fear the Lord, and how you need to fear the Lord if you would not consent to the enticements of sinners. Well, we have three points, and the last one is very brief. You have a responsibility to learn the fear of God for yourself. You have a responsibility to learn the fear of God from your parents. And finally, you are promised true beauty if you fear the Lord. Solomon describes the blessing of young people who heed loving biblical parental instruction with language that may sound very strange to 21st century ears, especially to American ears. Indeed, my instruction, my counsel, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. You see, what was true of Sol young people in Solomon's day is true of young people today. You may be fond of fine clothes and adornments for your body. Solomon elevates this desire to the level of true beauty. He teaches that glad submission to godly parents is like being adorned with beautiful, expensive jewelry. 
The world, worldly equivalent and crass counterfeit today would be those who draw attention to themselves with tattoos and piercings. I, I see some people, they, they, they must mistake their body for a mural and their, the rest of their body for pincushion. Got to have all these piercings and paintings on them. They think that that's beautiful. Well, that's a counterfeit. True beauty is the hidden person of the heart that reveals itself in a godly life. It's a savor, a sweet savor to those who know and love the Lord. It may be strange in the nostrils of unconverted people. They may find it offensive, but to the truly godly, they find it sweet to their souls. It is true that your submissiveness and obedience to your parents, that the beauty of your Christian profession may be invisible or even repulsive to your worldly peers, but it is precious in the sight of Christ and of all who fear God. Let me ask you, children, what matters to you most? Beauty in the sight of men or beauty in the sight of God? One beauty fades and the other only becomes more lovely. The adornment of true beauty never goes out of style because it bestows proper honor to godly parents. It glorifies God and it encourages the people of God. So I close, I leave you with this question. Do you wish to be so adorned, young people? You older people, I ask the same question. Do you desire to be adorned with the beauty of holiness? Well, may God make all of us desire that above all things and to seek it through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we have had ringing in our ears solemn warnings today from Solomon. Oh, how many sinners there are out there to entice us and Lord, they do have a handle on our heart. They will distract our attention. They will turn our feet away from the paths of holiness. Lord, if you help us not. So Lord, we are weak. Make us strong in Christ. We are distracted. Make us fixed in our focus upon Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Oh, make us to run hard after him. By your grace, fill our lungs with, with the spirit of God as it were to give us that stamina and strength that we need to run the race that is set before us with our eyes fixed upon our Savior. And for those here that may be flirting with the world or may be even in bed with the world, we pray that you would, you would grant them the grace of true repentance. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And therefore, we pray that they would run on the feet of faith and repentance to Jesus Christ and to be plunged into the fountain that's open for sin and uncleanness. Lord, help us to be principled in our Christian life. Help us to be determined and decisive in the way that we live, even if it brings the snarls and the sneers of the world. Lord, our desire is, to, is for your smile to rest upon us. So Lord, cause our focus to be fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and to live for him, come what may. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.